When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast hosted by Nate Wilcox. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, electronic dance music, and heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, ragtime, Latin music, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our brand new Substack newsletter and website at LetItRollPodcast.com. We've got archives of every episode sorted by genre, era, guest, co-host, and miniseries. It's also a great way to support the show if you can afford it. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www. PantheonPodcasts.com. Today, as part of our Let Motown Roll series, we're recasting Nate's 2021 interview with Dave Thompson about his book, Come and Get These Memories, The Story of Holland Dozier Holland, Motown's Greatest Production and Songwriting Team. Email us at letterrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. Time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today I'm joined by Dave Thompson, the co-author of Come and Get These Memories, The Genius of Holland Dozier Holland, Motown's Incomparable Songwriters by Eddie and Brian Holland with Dave Thompson. Dave, welcome. Hi there. Thanks for having me. It's a treat, and uh, we've done a lot of shows on Motown, and I think this book definitely has become a primary, a key primary source document on Motown because the Holland brothers are two-thirds of the great Holland Dozier Holland songwriting team, which for many people's money was the top songwriting team of the 60s. Forget Lennon McCartney, forget Goffin and King, I mean, Bob Dylan, Brian Wilson, anybody. These guys are right there at the top. How big a deal are they? I think they're an enormous deal. Um, and it's it's a shame, really, that they're not as well-known as the songwriter, or maybe not as well-known as some of the songwriting teams you mentioned, because I don't think there are many people of a certain vintage who didn't grow up with their music. I mean, I certainly didn't. I was in the UK, and a lot of my earliest musical memories turned out to be... Yeah. Holland Dozier Holland songs. 
Absolutely. Their run with the Supremes alone, I, I, like almost a dozen number one hits, I think five number one hits in a row at the peak of Beatlemania, just an yeah. incomparable run, not to mention the number one hits they were having with the Four Tops, plus scoring hits with Martha and the Vandellas, Marvin Gaye, and writing songs for Smokey Robinson and the Miracles. Not many people got to write songs for Smokey Robinson. I mean, that is a high honor. These dudes are big time. Yeah. Um, I mean, Eddie said that, you know, he'd thought about it and one day he just offered a song and Smokey was like, okay, we'll do it. And it was like one of the highlights of his early writing career. Yeah, and that's Mickey's Monkey, which is uh, one of the really... It's a it's a kick and an unusual song for Smokey. It's it's an up tempo dance tune, and it's named in honor of Mickey Stevenson, the head of A and R for Motown. But let's dig a little yeah. bit into in, into the background and and who they were. First off, there's three guys in the songwriting team: Eddie Holland, his little brother Brian Holland, and then Lamont Dozier. How did they come together, and what were the different roles each of them played in the team? Well, Brian and Lamont worked together first. They had their own little run of successes. And what it came... I mean, Brian was... Uh, they, were, they were the writers, uh, arrangers, producers. I mean, whatever, really whatever they had to do. And one day, they were sitting... Brian and Eddie were sitting around, and their royalty checks arrived. And Eddie had just had you know, his big hit... And um, they opened their royalty statements, and I don't know the exact, the exact numbers, but let's say you know, Eddie's was for 50 bucks and Brian's was for you know, 50,000 bucks. And <laughs> Eddie looked over and he's like, I'm in the wrong job. <laughs> and he, beca he became a songwriter. Yeah, because up to uh, that point, he'd been a singer and and, and had been yeah. um, working with Barry Gordy. He started out doing demos for Barry Gordy when he was writing songs for Jackie Wilson. And then, yeah. um, you know, slogged it out in the trenches, hated to perform, hated everything about performing except singing in the studio, but gutted it out for several years uh, until he had a top 30 hit with Jamie and, and then sees the paychecks and realizes songwriting is the, the side of the business to be on. And it's so funny because he says he is not a natural songwriter. I mean, he is adamant on that point that he taught himself to sing and or taught himself to write. And I don't believe a word of it. I think he was, you know, he was a natural gifted songwriter. He just hadn't figured it out yet. Yeah, it's very interesting. Sorry to interrupt. It's very interesting to read his detailed discussions of his approach to the craft because it's definitely a self-conscious approach that he's put a lot of thought into. But again, I think if if, and I don't want to disparage your songwriting abilities, but I think if you and I were to try to take his approach, we're still not going to be Eddie Holland, no matter how long we we endeavor. And I don't think many people would. Uh, he tells a story of how you know he had to figure out what a song looked like. So a friend of his had written one. So Eddie bought it off him for 50 bucks, I think, and sat there and studied the form. And then you know, he'd sit there and he'd write a little bit and he'd look at it and he'd write a bit more and he'd show them to his brother and Brian would be, oh, you're coming along slowly. And finally he'd written a song that he was confident enough for Brian to show to Barry Gordy. 
and Barry didn't believe he'd written it. <laughs> Barry didn't believe Brian had written it because he knew Brian no, didn't, didn't write lyrics. He didn't believe Eddie had written it. You know, Brian said, this is, you know, this is what Eddie has done. And Barry said, no, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it uh, went from the... Go ahead. I'd say it went from there. Uh, the three of them, Kate Lamont, Brian and Eddie, came together as a team. And they really did hit the ground running. There Absolutely. Was there was you just don't... something about the combination of the three of them. You know, writing separately, Brian and Lamont wrote good songs, but they didn't write that many mention the, mention the title and I could sing you the chorus songs. Eddie and Brian on their own wrote, they said, you know, I think in their opinion, they wrote better songs as songs. But in terms of just immediate, you know, again, Sing, you know, naming the title, I'll sing you the whole thing. It took the three of them. That was the magic. Yeah, there's definitely a unique chemistry in the three of them. And, and the way it's described in the book, you know, Eddie was the lyricist, so there's a clear yeah. lane there. And Brian is described as a phenomenal musical genius from the get-go, that he his talent was so vast that it really intimidated Eddie because he's one of these people with perfect pitch, the kind of yeah. person you can hear, hear a you know C sharp suspended seventh and know exactly what chord it is and what notes are in it. He uh, just intuitively understood harmony at, at a very deep level. And then Lamont Dozier seems to be, uh, he's an ex drummer and he's one of these musical sort of riff meisters. Like he, he would kind of take the lead on on the, their up tempo songs and 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 frequently start a song with a groove. And so he and Brian were a perfect musical fit. I think I think they yeah. how did those two come together? Lamont's wife worked at Motown and she suggested that Brian meet him. It was that simple. The whole process really was just you know luck, things falling into place. The story about Eddie even getting going in the first place is an example. A friend of his came around and said, oh, I'm going for an audition with this big producer in downtown Detroit. Do you want to come along with me? Keep me company. And Eddie was, sure. And he got there, and the guy asked both of them to sing, and it was Eddie he offered the deal to, which didn't do much for his friendship with, <laughs> with the guy. <laughs> but... Everything that happened in the early days, I mean, there was a lot of work, obviously, went into it. But it was just luck. Eddie turned up at Barry Gordy's door and said, complete stranger, I, said, I hear you manage singers. And Barry was, I only manage singers I write for. You know, come in. And Eddie just came in and sat there, and Barry had him try out on the piano which took a lot, I think, a lot of nerve from Eddie to go there because, yeah, he was just a kid. Well, yeah, teenager. It took a lot of nerve, but he went there, and it was, you know, it was lucky Eddie was in, uh, Barry was in. It was lucky Barry didn't just slam the door in his face because I'm sure he had approaches like that all the time. <laughs> <laughs> 
And this is pretty early in Barry Gordy's career. He hasn't founded Motown yet, but he is writing and producing for Jackie Wilson. And it was Eddie saying, I can sing Jackie Wilson songs that got Barry's attention because Jackie Wilson's this very operatic talented yeah. trained singer and not just everybody plenty of good singers cannot sing jackie wilson's song so that immediately caught barry's ear they were the the holland brothers grew up in detroit what was their childhood like it was it was good it was strange by a lot of people's standards a single mother who wasn't really able to deal with you know, two growing boys So Brian was sent off to live with Grandma, and then Eddie joined him. And Grandma more or less raised them. And Grandma was, from from all descriptions, she was one of those terrifying women who wants everything done her way, has the strictest rules. There was a long time they were not allowed out into the garden to play if she wasn't there to supervise them. Then they were allowed into the garden, but they weren't allowed out of the gate. Then they could play on the street outside. And she, Grandma also had a network of neighbors who watched everything they did. So if they walked down the road and one of them used the cuss word, a head would pop over the fence and say, I'm telling your grandma. (laughs) (laughs) It takes a village. Yeah, I mean, they weren't a wealthy family by any stretch of the imagination, but they were were well-to-do. They had an uncle who collected records and that's where a lot of their musical upbringing or musical education came from was listening to his records usually when he was there because when he wasn't there accidents happened and you know how fragile 78s can be so (laughs) (laughs) you gotta be careful with your uncle's select yeah. sets. And and one thing that was interesting in reading about that was their uncle was into pop, jazz, big band, and show tunes, but he did not like R&B. And, and they went to church, and they had the gospel church choir background as well. But I thought it was very interesting that their relationship with blues in particular was ambivalent from the beginning. And that's something I think that you can hear, that they were pop and jazz. Jazz influence more so uh, than blues and rhythm and blues influence. But let's go ahead and hear our first song. This is one of Eddie Holland's uh, last songs as a solo singer, but but a, a song that was written by the whole team. This is Eddie Holland doing Leaving Here by Holland Dozier Holland. Eddie Holland singing Leaving Here by Holland Dozier Holland. And as you can hear, I mean, dude can sing. He was a very gifted singer, and that made it easy for him to step into the role of being the vocal producer. Like when they were cutting their songs, Brian and Lamont would be working with the Funk Brothers, the the Motown session band, and working with Paul Reiser, the arranger. 
and working with the background vocalist Brian Holland in particular would be doing that stuff but Eddie would be the one coaching Diana Ross and coaching Levi Stubbs and there's some really interesting stories of how he got some great performances out of those two kind of against their will before we get to that can I just say what a great choice of song that was because that really does that really indicates what you were saying about the pop mentality as opposed to the soul mentality or R&B, because when you think of the people who've recorded Leaving Here, you know, Ronnie Wood's first band, The Birds, Motorhead, The Who, yeah, it's one of those songs that has almost become a rock classic. Absolutely. And- it's, got, it's got a heaviness to it without being bluesy, which is kind of a rare thing. Yeah. And there can't be many Motown songwriters who've had a song covered by Motorhead. <laughs> no doubt about that. <laughs> for a long time, been... I go ahead. For a long time, I didn't realize it was. It wasn't a Motown song I knew when I first heard Motorhead. You know, I was like fifteen or sixteen. I didn't realize it was a Motown song. It's easy to miss. It wasn't a big hit at the time. I mean, it did hit the lower reaches of the pop top 40, I think, and did okay on R&B. But yeah, I first heard the Who cover of it, and and it wasn't yeah. until, until um, I had this obsessive project of making a playlist of the best songs of 1963 that blew up to like 800 songs, and that one really jumped out, Eddie <laughs> Holland's version of that. <laughs> but, but yeah, um, and... and they, you know, they grow up in this in this sort of hothouse flower environment where they're relatively sheltered kids. And there's a great anecdote you tell about um, Eddie being kidnapped as a baby. That his mother had left him out in in the stroller briefly, gone inside, and a neighbor woman thought she was so beautiful she grabbed him up and took him home. Yes, and it's strange. Eddie was in- very interesting to work with because, I mean, he didn't know me from Adam when we started. Um, I was introduced as a writer and a fan, but he was feeling me out for a long time. And we were some way into the project when he actually admitted, you know, there's a lot of stories that I've kept back because I didn't know you very well, but I want to tell you this one and I wanted to start the book and I want to make sure you appreciate how important it is to me. And he tells this story. And he go after that, he goes into this, and what if my mother had never found me? What if the neighbor had not seen her, this woman take me and where she went? You know, how would I have grown up? I wouldn't have had Brian. I would never have, I wouldn't have had my uncle or grandmother. I would never have met Barry and so on and so forth. And it's like, that is a really dark way of starting the book. And I think that's, <laughs> I, I think that's why he kept it back from me. But a lot, I think, of his motivation and drive, particularly so once he take once things had taken off, was with that in mind. Because when you think about it, I mean, it's and it's, all, it's an alternative reality, but it probably would never have worked out as well as it did for yeah. him. Definitely not. I mean, he he had this family dynamic with his his partnership with his brother, and also the relationship with Barry Gordy, and and yeah, B- Brian is taken under Barry's wing very early as well. Shortly after Eddie, yeah. is. I, Barry 
very thought of Brian as a kid. And when Eddie was saying, you have to meet my brother, he's you know, a musical genius. Barry was, how's your brother? And Eddie would be like, 14. Yeah, okay, 14. And then he met him and they got talking and Brian showed him what he could do, you know, even at such an early age. And Barry saw, maybe even before Eddie, actually saw and understood what Brian could do with music and how he related to... He's one of those people, he can hear three notes and write a symphony out of them. Which is incredible ability and it's almost wasted in pop music. He should have been a classical composer or something. I, I can understand the sentiment, but when you look at their body of work and the impact on the culture, it's hard to think that, I mean, it's hard to imagine a scenario in which he reached more people or made more of a difference with his music. So, yeah, it, it's... Oh, I'm not talking in terms of popularity, but just in terms of what he could create. Oh, yeah, and in, in terms of the technical sophistication, but some of these songs are really, really cleverly constructed. So, um, yeah, it's, it's hard to question, but I definitely had the talent to do anything he wanted to. And they... One, one thing that really comes out to me is, and this comes out over and over again with Motown stories, is these are guys who ultimately have some serious differences with Barry Gordy, but it's really clear, especially in contrast with somebody like Phil Spector, that Barry Gordy had a big vision and really understood how to cultivate people, how to bring out the best in people, how to create a family dynamic, a competitive environment, but a loving environment. And, you know, nobody else has done anything comparable that I'm aware of to what Barry Gordy did. He wasn't just, you know, not only was he a very successful songwriter in his own right and producer, but he created and cultivated a half of a dozen of the best singer songwriter teams of his era. I mean, maybe Lieber and Stoller could say in the Brill building were mentoring, you know, Goffin and King and, and Manuel and others, but not in the systematic way that Barry Gordy did. How do you see Barry Gordy's accomplishment um, in terms of Holland, Dozier, Holland? Well, the Brill Building is an interesting comparison because, yes, it produced a lot of great writers and a lot of great songs, but it was a very short period that it was really in its pomp. And in a way, Motown supplanted it, particularly once... Hollandosia Holland got going. You, know, you suddenly didn't hear these sort of nice high school oriented love songs anymore. You had, I think it was more, they wrote, I think, more street, if I can use that expression. They looked at what teenagers that they knew or that they remembered because they weren't that much older than teenagers, even at the peak. They, they understood young urban teenagers and emotions and feelings in a way that the Brill Building songs rarely did. Carol King was probably the closest to hitting that. And maybe Shadow Morton, but you know, he wasn't Brill Building with the Shangri-Las. Yeah. No yeah, one had the liberty of Motown and nobody had the, just the impact of Motown. Even Stax, who a lot of people say it was between Stax and Motown. Stax were, were no competition at all. 
Yeah, it's it's even in the Stacks documentary, they get one of the Funk brothers to to pop in and and discuss Stacks, and he's like, "Look, Stacks is great. We love him, but there's no comparison with no. what we did at Motown, just in terms of commercial success alone, and 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 the sheer volume of of great songs. And you know, Motown. If you listen to the entire Motown catalog, you can see that that quality control committee that, that Barry Gordy ran yeah. and Brian Holland was a key part of. I mean, they did a great job of picking out their best stuff and putting it forward, but they held back a lot of great stuff too. And then, and then there's a lot of stuff that, that you can hear why they held it back or, you know, when you listen to it, but let's hear another song. This is, the Supremes were known as the no-hit Supremes uh, for the first couple of years of their tenure at Motown. Smokey Robinson couldn't get a hit on them. Barry Gordy couldn't get a hit on them. And then Holland Dozier Holland get a chance with this song, When the Love Lights Start Shining Through His Eyes by the Supremes. When the Love Light Starts Shining Through His Eyes by the Supremes. That's the first song that Holland Dozier Holland uh, wrote and recorded for them. Made it to number two on the R&B charts, number 23 on the pop charts, and more importantly, it set them on their way, followed up by Where Did Our Love Go um, and that incredible run of number one hits, Baby, I Need, uh, um, Baby Love, et cetera, et cetera, that... You know, for a little while there, at the end of 64 and through 66, I mean, the Supremes are going toe-to-toe with the Beatles. They're on Ed Sullivan all the time. They're on the Dick Clark Caravan of Stars and really take Motown to a whole new level. I mean, they'd been successful. They'd had a lot of R&B hits. They'd had a couple of pop number ones, but nothing like the run that Holland Holland had with the Supremes. And it wasn't only the Supremes. You look at the four tops who were also more or less indestructible for a lot of the 60s on Holland, those the Holland songs. And then there were all the, like the one-offs. One of my favorite songs, and Eddie howled when I told him this, was Heaven Must Have Sent You, which was a hit for the Elgins. Mm-hmm. And it turned out that... Um, one of the Elgins was actually their the Holland's driver, and he asked, "Do you have a song for my band?" So Eddie just gave him. It's a song that Eddie really doesn't seem to think that much of, but he gave it to this guy. Said, "Oh, try this." It gave them a hit. It was a huge hit in England, early seventies. That's where I first heard it, and I mean, I just loved it. And I'm telling you this, and he's like, oh, no. <laughs> That's not a good call. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a number of songs that he, I'm not going to say what they are, read the book, but um, there's a number of songs that he really looks down on that I think are among people's favorites. And this especially goes to songs that Motown didn't release at the time. As you were saying, we've been lucky in the last probably couple of decades now that Motown have allowed people to open the vault 
and have now done so themselves and are putting out these wonderful collections of just unreleased Motown stuff. And you play through it, and there's a lot of Hollandosia Holland in there. There's a lot of you know, other writers as well. And you listen to it, you say, why didn't they choose this? Why wasn't this a huge hit? But then you can also look at some of the singers that didn't really get overused. And again, I, this person's got a wonderful voice. Why? And you can't answer that. It's, you know, the, the committee made its decision and more often than not it was very correct yeah absolutely that quality control committee and this is a committee of barry gordy brian holland uh, a couple of barry sisters some of the people from the business side and they were the ones who decided this is the single we're going to release now this is the single we're going to release in two weeks this stuff we're not going to put out or we're going to hold back and so that was kind of the brain trust of of motown i mean he had a lot of producers in there cutting songs with the groups with the funk brothers and then and then recording the vocals with the groups but you know he kind of let a thousand flowers bloom in the studio but when that when it went through that bottleneck of the quality control committee you know it was merciless it was egalitarian uh, it was based on what's the best song. And I guess you'd have to just be in there and listen to those unreleased songs and then hear what they were up against, because that can definitely change your perspective. It's like a song can sound really great, but when you hear it in the context of these four or five other songs that just came out or were competing with it, then you kind of understand. But yeah, it's fascinating. And like the whole Northern Soul movement in England is really just kind of a rehash of Motown. I mean, frequently the most famous Northern Soul songs were not Motown, but they were reviving a lot of stuff like Smokey Robinson hits that songs that hadn't been hits when initially released or uh, Arding Taylor songs that were, I don't know if they were never released or just never big singles, you know, so it had this massive echo effect. And I, I think the whole school of pop that comes down from Northern Soul through high energy and um, so much of, of garage music and house music and the dance music of today is is straight up derived from Holland Dozier Holland. I used to wonder, like, why don't more hip hop artists go back to soul? And then that's because that's because it's on the house side of the family tree. You know, it's it's like yeah. hip hop and house split. And, and Motown is definitely influential still today. It's funny that you mentioned Northern Soul because I spent a lot of time of listening to that stuff. I'm not really a dancer. But um, looking back, the number of hits, yeah, and Motown ones included, that came from the Northern Soul scene's influence. And the Elgins was one of them. And you mentioned Ardeen Taylor, uh, Indiana Wants Me, and um, Gotta See Jane were both big on the Northern Soul scene before they hit the charts in the UK. And this carried on through the first half of the 70s. You'd go to a club and then a few weeks later, you'd start hearing the song on the radio that you thought, wow, this is really good when you were out. But you did mention, um, I'm going to go back to a, a question you started to ask before I distracted you. <laughs> um, Eddie coaching the singers. When he wrote a song, he knew how it should sound. He knew the inflections. He knew the tone of voice. He knew the delivery that he wanted. And usually 
it would take him one or two goes and the singer would get it and everything would be great. Um, with uh, Where Did Our Love Go? So he took, you know, they took it to the Supremes and there's Diana Ross and she sings it in her Diana Ross voice and Eddie's like, no, that's not how I want you to do it. I want you to sound really, really bored. And she couldn't or wouldn't do it and they had a fight really you know which even came down to her threatening to go and tell Barry what was going on and Eddie was be my guest because he knew that Barry would side with him because he usually did in matters of song presentation so Diana okay and she sat there and sang it in what she considered was the most despondent voice imaginable. And when she was done, she looked at him and said, like that, you mean? And he was, yep, that's perfect. We've got a take. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's a listen, Go ahead. Listen to that song. He was right. Oh. You know, she, yeah. couldn't, she couldn't have sung it in you know, her baby love voice or you know, love light voice. It had to be delivered like that. And if you listen to the best covers of it, and I would say Soft Cells is probably my favorite, they keep that weary, despondent voice. Absolutely. And let's take a quick break and hear from our sponsors. And when we come back, I want you to uh, tell a story of how he coached Levi Stubbs of the Four Tops through a song. So we've heard how Eddie Holland coached Diana Ross through uh, singing. There's also a great story you tell about a time when he's working with the Four Tops. And Levi Stubbs, the great, great lead vocalist of the Four Tops, has to hit a really high note. And Eddie resorted to kind of a brilliant underhanded trick to get Levi uh, to deliver the goods. Yeah, Levi just couldn't or again wouldn't do it. It just was so, I can't remember what song it was. I was hoping you'd say in your uh, in your question. I'm afraid I'm blanking. <laughs> yes, yeah, so am I. Um, so it was going nowhere. Levi just wasn't doing it. Now, there were always fans outside the Motown building, standing around by the doors, hoping to get autographs or whatever. So. On this occasion, Eddie let them in to watch Levi recording, and he hit that note first time. He had an audience, he was up for it, and he did it. Which was it's, it's brilliant psychology. Yes. And, and and that's really the essence of the producer's art, is to get those performances. And Eddie Holland was the one working to get the performance out of the singer. And Brian and Lamont were working with the band in the background vocals and the producer, or the arranger, to get uh, that thing. So it's just an incredible three-headed monster. And... Um, they have this incredible run. And at one point, the Beatles, there's even rumors that the Beatles... Um, are, well, it's not even a rumor. They were contacted. Would you be interested in going to Abbey Road and producing the Beatles? Tell us a little bit about that. That's one of those stories that nobody can or will answer. Uh, one day, 
the brothers were told the Beatles want you to go to England and produce them. And they were very excited about this, and then they didn't hear any more. It was just something they were told. And the yeah. feeling the feeling is that more approaches were made, but Motown shut it down. Neil Berry shut it down for whatever reason. But hmm. could you imagine? <laughs> I know, I know. There's, they they had also contacted Stax about going to Memphis and recording at Stax around that time, and and I think this was around the Revolver period. And so it's 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 pre Sergeant Pepper, and and they're definitely feeling like they're frustrated with the Beatlemania box, and 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 they think maybe changing up the, the recording arrangement is going to solve it. But yeah, it's fascinating to think what Eddie, uh, what Holland Dozier Holland and the Beatles in Abbey Road would have been like. I, I don't, you know, so much of these things are chemistry. So it could have, it could have been a total whiff, you know, it could have totally missed. But well, I think Lennon and McCartney, in particular, were very, very strong-willed, and so were the brothers and Lamont. So if they had butted heads, that would have been that would have been something to watch. You'd hope the tape, you'd hope a very disgruntled. <laughs> George Martin would have a tape recorder going. (laughs) (laughs) Because how would George Martin have responded to being pushed aside for Holland Dozier Holland? Exactly. Uh, What would that have done to his relationship with the Beatles and with Brian Epstein and the rest of Brian's stable? There's a lot, I think a lot of noses could have got put out of joint if that had happened. But it is one of those great what-ifs. Absolutely, and I think it's very telling what kind of rarefied air Holland Dozier Holland was walking in. I mean, every time one of their records hit the stands, Paul McCartney and John Lennon are among the first people picking it up and studying it. this is uh, very much, and vice versa. They were paying very close attention to what the Beatles were doing. And, you know, some of the Motown artists were a little disgruntled when the Beatles arrived. But the Beatles are right away name-checking him and saying, you know, our favorite artists are all in Motowns. And then once the royalty checks start coming through for the songwriters, it's a very clarifying experience that, yes, this is a beautiful relationship. But despite all the success, things are not smooth with Holland, Dozier Holland, and Barry Gordy. What happened to that relationship? Unfortunately, it came down to... I think Eddie was the ringleader. Uh, Eddie wanted more recognition for Brian, and that's we're talking financial as well. Uh, but he also wanted more recognition for what the, the three of them were doing, and kind of felt that Barry should maybe give them their own label. And Barry was not willing to do that because he knew as you know, as you can imagine, that if they had their own label, suddenly their best songs would be on their label. <laughs> and yeah, Ed, Barry didn't want that, and you can understand it, but you've got two very, very stubborn people having an argument, and then lawyers got involved and other interested parties got involved, most of whom were on Barry's side because Motown was their meal ticket. And I don't mean that in a bad way. 
But suddenly it went from being a stubborn discussion between Eddie and Barry into Eddie against the entire company. And, yeah, inevitably he lost. <laughs> yeah. And, Which was... And, and... it was. I mean, it was bad move both uh, but for everybody, both sides. It really was the worst conclusion to what should have been resolved somehow. You know, give Brian that little bit more money. Give them a little more autonomy. Um, anything, you know, but don't lose them. Because Motown, I think Barry's feeling was if they went, he still had all the other writers. And Ashman and Simpson had just come in as well. And they were on a roll for a few years. So it didn't really hurt. But at the same time, there's the knowledge that some of those great songs that the brothers did for with Invictus, I say the brothers and Lamont, <laughs> as the great songs that came out on Invictus could have been Motown records. Absolutely. And, and the, the legal wrangling put Hall and Dozier Holland on the bench for 18 months to two years where they basically didn't put out anything. I mean, you know, Motown had one of its biggest years in 1968, but only a handful of songs from Holland, Dozier Holland. And one of the accusations was that they had gone on strike and that they weren't recording. But Eddie's got a whole explanation for that. He had become the head of A&R, replacing Mickey Stevenson. So there's a lot of, you know, corporate infighting here. And if you've never been in a corporation, I think it's hard to understand. But Eddie was somebody who was an up-and-comer, and there were a lot of other up-and-comers who wanted that position. So there's a lot of whispering and Barry's ear and, and backstabbing and, and paranoia. But let's hear another song. This is one of the last songs they cut on Diana Ross and the Supremes. And this is one of the first ones that's named that way, Diana Ross and the Supremes. And this is Reflections from 1967. And that was Reflections, a song Holland Dozier Holland wrote and produced for Diana Ross and the Supremes in 67. And that's one of those songs that sort of gives a hint. I mean, it's very clear that they're keeping up with the times, or that's their attempt to keep up with the times. This is 1967, Sgt. Peppers and Psychedelia and Monterey Pop and all that. And Motown is obviously going to go in that direction with Norman Whitfield and the Temptations and Psychedelic Soul and, uh, you know, the version of I Heard It Through the Grapevine cut on Marvin Gaye. And Holland Dozier Holland don't really, I mean, they're kind of taken out of time. They're, they're at the absolute forefront of pop from 63 through 67, and then suddenly they're just taken out of the game. And a couple of years later, they come back with Invictus. But, but I really feel like we've been robbed of something, that we didn't get to see how they would have developed through those very key late 60s years. Definitely. Uh I think the direction they were going in would have, it would have followed sort of the reflections. Brian said one of his favorite covers of any of the songs they wrote was uh, Vanilla Fudge's version of You Keep Me Hanging On. And, you know, you compare that to the original. It's 
completely it's completely different, but you could also see the roots of the fudge version in it. And could you imagine if they had done with either the Four Tops or even the Supremes what Norman Whitfield was, uh, went on to do with the Temptations? And I don't mean ten, I don't mean sort of ten minute jams, um, but just going in that direction. It could have been amazing, and they missed out. We we lost this. We lost their songs for two years, but I think they lost the opportunity to write songs that would have kept them in the forefront, no matter what the mood of the times was. Uh, absolutely, and Vanilla Fudge is one of those groups that's pretty forgotten today. But if you look at them in yeah, <laughs> and then people go back and forth. It, it's I, I I love their version of "You Keep Me Hanging On" though, and and that first album is pretty listenable. And if you read contemporary accounts, you know Holland Dozier Holland was digging what they were doing, the Beatles were digging what they were doing. Jeff Beck, who's at the forefront of hard rock in this period, he loved Vanilla yeah. Fudge, and and it was yeah. it was. Deep Purple were huge fans. Yeah, I mean, they were absolutely on the cutting edge of where rock music and and where soul music was going um, at that time. And yeah, it, it's, you know, Hollanders or Holland go on to form two la labels, Hot Wax and Invictus, and, and, and cut very clever deals with two different labels. Hot Wax is associated with Buddha Records, which was a big independent at the time, not quite a major label, but a big, a very large, well-distributed uh, independent. And then Capital, of course, was a major. And, the, and they cut uh, deals with both of them at the same time, which is pretty brilliant business maneuvering. And you can tell Eddie learned a lot from Barry Gordy to negotiate those yeah. deals. Yeah. And in fact, if you listen through the catalog, there's a lot of great songs there. But... There's also the feeling that they were treading water a lot of the time, that they, they'd lost the impetus. And again, it comes down to the, the period when they couldn't legally do anything. They'd lost that finger on the pulse, I think. And they turned to writing... What were still great songs, but you know, name three Invictus songs written by Holland Ozier Holland that stick in your mind. You know, yeah, there's not many. Yeah, I mean, Band of Gold and, and a, well, a couple of well, others. Give Me Just a Little More Time jumps out. But all of those, to me, have the feeling like those were songs that they probably had in reserve for a while. They feel kind of like relics in a way when you listen Band to them against Band of Gold is a funny one because yeah it wasn't credited to any of the yeah any of the team yet you listen to that song you listen to the lyrics you read the book and think of the you know, and then think of the storyline of that song it's like it's such an Eddie Holland lyric yet he didn't write it he says yeah, he couldn't legally, he could not release a song that he had written and he was not going to go against, you know, that injunction. So he didn't write it. Yeah, it's written by Edith Wayne, quote, quote. Yes. And 
General Johnson and Ronald Dunbar. And yeah, so they were having to go through these machinations um, for legal reasons and, and have to stick with that today. But yeah, it's obvious if you listen to it, it's all a Dozier Holland song. It's, it's, no, it, seems, it seems obvious. Yes, 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 yes. It is Thank you. Legal. <laughs> but there, uh, yeah, but there's a reason they're listed on the Holland Osher Holland discography on Wikipedia because um, it's very clear that they influenced the creation of those songs in yeah. a strong degree, and um, <laughs> and it's I don't know it's it's fascinating to me and, and there's so many stories we didn't get to you know Brian Holland's relationship with Diana Ross Brian Holland's. Uh, terrible first marriage um there's a lot of drama going on behind the scenes at motown is there a favorite story or go for it i don't know about a favorite story but i think the lawrence horn business i mean lawrence horn was one of the engineers at motown uh, and he was brilliant. You listen to any record that Lawrence Horn was involved in, and you can hear the difference that he made. Yeah, he introduced the team to synthesizers, uh, much to Eddie's horror, but you know it worked. And years later, um, Lawrence paid somebody to kill his wife. <laughs> yep. and there was. There was a huge, I mean, it was a huge deal in the news when it happened. It was in the 90s. And Eddie was called as a witness or, yeah, as a character witness for the defense. And I don't want to give anything away if someone hasn't read the book, but it really is one of those stories that is so, it's heartbreaking in a way because this was a guy they had known for, 30 years getting on for 30 years and the guy they knew would not have paid someone to kill their wife and it's you know you read it and you just realize the desperation and the you know the sheer horror of horn what horn saw as his position at the time and what that will drive somebody to and even as I was writing it after Eddie had told me, I was think I was just thinking of all those cases you hear where somebody has done something particularly heinous and they go to the neighbor. It's like, oh, we've never, never have expected. He was such a nice man. And that's all I could think of. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's quite you, a tale. You hear, you hear that so often. It's, you know, it's virtually become a cliche. You know, there's a, there's a murder case on the news, and you're just sitting there waiting for the neighbour. Oh no, he was such a lovely man. <laughs> and it's almost, you know, you almost laugh now when you hear it. I was waiting for that. It's like, you know, after an earthquake, where they always find either a baby or a puppy three weeks later yep. in the wreckage. Right? Uh, yep, yep, that had to come. But with this one, it's like, oh, <laughs> I see what they mean. Yeah. It, it... It really shows you can only know people so well and never really know the depths. But let's hear one last song. This is Give Me Just a Little More Time by the chairman of the board, written um, by Edith Wayne, Angelo Bond, and Ronald Dunbar. But some people seem to hear some Holland Dozier Holland in there.
and that was giving just a little more time by the chairman of the board um, on the Invictus label that the Holland brothers founded with Lamont Dozier and Capitol Records after they left Motown. And yeah, and and after they get free and they start putting, they put their record labels together and, and they've got their acts and they've got some hit records, then they fall out with Lamont Dozier. What, what happened there? There's always been a degree of tension. Lamont thought he was overlooked in the team. Even though his name was in the middle, he never felt he really got his due. And as far as Eddie and Brian were concerned, you know, he got you know, equal partner, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it was just, again, it was a misunderstanding and, you know, heads got hard and lawyers got involved and people whispered. And Lamont was offered a solo deal by ABC, I believe, and went off and had a big hit with a song that he'd written on his own. And that gave him the... I don't know, the justification he needed to leave the team. And ultimately, it was another of those moves that that really wasn't a good idea. They should not have let him go, and he should not have gone. It was almost a rerun of the Motown fallout. And, of course, Brian and Eddie then went back to Motown, which... I'd sort of forgotten until Eddie reminded me. And it's like, everything was forgotten. All the terrible things that had happened over the previous years, all swept aside. You know, Barry welcomed them back. They wrote for the Supremes, who were, of course, a completely different creature to the one they had, they had left. But they had hits. They worked with Michael Jackson. And... Everything went well for a while, but Motown was, by now, Motown was losing its way. So it didn't last as long as it could. Did you know Brian produced the Osmonds? I did not know that. That's amazing. I knew that the Osmonds had recorded uh, at Muscle Shoals, at Fame Studios in Muscle Shoals, but that's, uh, it makes sense. I mean, the Osmonds were trying to be the Jackson 5, so, you know, go to the source. (laughs) I'll have, to, I'll have to dig that one up and see how he did with them. But this has been great, Dave. The book is Come and Get These Memories, The Genius of Holland, Dozier Holland, Motown's Incomparable Songwriters by Eddie and Brian Holland with Dave Thompson. And Dave, it's been a delight, and I'd love to have you back. You've got so many great books. I, I want to talk about Thank Jeff you. Beck, and you've got the new Donna oh. Summer, Giorgio Moroder book coming out I'd love to talk yeah. to. So um, I'll definitely be in touch if you're amenable. Oh, definitely. And can I just say, anyone who's reading the book, get yourself a copy of the Supreme Sing Holland Dozier Holland LP. Um, It's out on CD in an expanded version, but you can just get the vinyl. That was the first Motown album I ever bought when I was an early teenager. And it is fantastic. Uh, I'm glad you made that recommendation. Yeah, it's almost a concept album in as much as you know, here's one group singing the songs by one person and both parties get equal billing on the cover. And it's great. 
Absolutely. And and when you listen to their whole discography in context, and I think, uh, was it Rodgers and Hart? They had just done an album of Broadway standards by, and they, they had the other album that's mostly Beatles songs. So it's fitting that, that HDH got to be on the marquee at least once. And yeah. it's by far the best Supremes album, in my opinion. Yeah, it is. I mean, the ones of show tunes and things, I'm not. They they were Brian's baby. Eddie had very very little to do with those. Yeah, that's 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 a that whole was, other discussion of Barry Gordy's obsession to follow Ray Charles into that sort of permanent pop success and and getting over with with uh, yeah white folks um, and and everything. Which the window had closed for that, I think, after Ray Charles and Motown was just never going to succeed at that. So yeah, Marvin Gaye bash his head against that rock a lot too but anyway it's it's uh dave thompson and the book come and get these memories dave it's been a pleasure and look forward to having you back thank you very much follow the let it roll podcast on twitter at let it roll cast and check out our website at let it roll podcast.com Thursday, Nate welcomes Greg Beats to discuss the Austin music scene of the 1990s. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.